Well, welcome to another new week of broadcasting here on the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Broadcasting is what we do. Uh, as a matter of fact, we are coming up on the 11th anniversary of this broadcast, and I, I can assure you it's been one of the, uh, that'll be next Monday, by the way. We'll do a little bell and whistle thing and stuff like that. Um, you know, one of the things I, I do love about the Bottom Line Show is um, how thoughtful we are as a community coming together every weekday to have these dialogues. Uh, sometimes the dialogue is live, obviously interacting. Sometimes I get a chance to uh, record interviews with guests and then play them back for you later. Uh, that's why you hear that little disclaimer every now and again. I mean, we're a West Coast program and there are a lot of folks who are on the East Coast and quite frankly, they're not available at dinner time. So, you know, I, I'll get up early, do what I have to do uh, to get the interview to you so you can hear straight from the source. And uh, I, I appreciate the fact that um, we have such a, a thoughtful group. But one of the things that I've really uh, taken notice of is about a year ago, a little over a year ago, um, I was trying to find a way to encapsulate what the Bottom Line Show is about with regard to you know what people are looking for. Because it would be one thing to say, there are a lot of programs, and, and they're good programs, that are, hey, it's so-and-so live, three to five, four to six, whatever, on your radio, and the host comes on, opens up the microphone, and says, well, what do you want to talk about? Phone lines are open, and we do that kind of stuff. And then there are Christian teaching and talk shows that are... Jay Vernon McGee and Charles Stanley and Michael Youssef and their, their Bible teaching ministries. And we have uh, that, you know, great uh, legacy of uh, great men and women of God who are teaching verse by verse through Scripture and, and words that might have been spoken 30, 40 years ago are still germane today. And that, that's, that's a huge part of what we do here on the Crawford Broadcasting uh, Companies is have those types of programs. And then there's the bottom line where we're just kind of somewhere in the middle where we, you know, I have a pastoral background, I'm an ordained minister, but I'm also a career broadcaster. And so we kind of occupy that space in the middle where sometimes it's a full-blown sermon. You've heard me preach here before, not necessarily pulpit messages that get played, but just um, you'll hear me kind of go into preach mode. Sometimes it's Q&A with listeners like you uh, calling in about an issue, regardless of what that issue might be. And then sometimes it's me having an interview with a guest, like coming up uh, in the next half hour, uh, Dr. Robert J. Morgan is going to join me and we're going to talk about 50 signs at the end time. Basically, this is what the world's going to look like as the end of the world is coming. And he basically walks us through the book of Revelation. But when someone asked me, well, how do you describe what you do on the bottom line show? I said, well, really, it's easy as ABC, um, analysis, balance and clarity. And if you get the analysis, balance, and clarity right, where you do the analysis, you get um, as many different sources. Don't just look at one meme or one article or have one conversation with your friends about something, but rather um, find out what the story is, get as much information as you can. Then the balance part is equally important. That's when you get uh, different viewpoints. Like, for example, I, I recently subscribed to, started subscribing to a publication called The Dispatch. That's where David French, who's been a, a contributor to the Bottom Line show on occasion over the past few years, is writing. And uh, it's the brainchild of Jonah Goldberg, who uh, heretofore was a conservative columnist in the secular realm. And I recently got a public relations piece from them explaining to me why we needed what they called a new kind of conservatism. And I'll be honest with you, I've read, I've been reading their stuff for about the past two months now, and what it reads like to me is, we are conservatives, we still want to be considered conservatives, we just don't like Donald Trump. And I, for the life of me, I, you know, they're saying basically everything that they say isn't conservatism is all the things that people who support Donald Trump think. And I thought, well, that's 
man, that, there there must be a market for that. That's all I can figure. I mean, let's be honest. Um, the reason books get written and published, the reason movies get made, the reason music is recorded, the reason stuff shows up on television or at the movie theater is because there's a market for it, first and foremost. But please understand that no one does these things altruistically uh, and expects to make a lot of money off them. They might sell you that image, but that's just not the way. I've talked to too many musicians and writers and things like that saying, wow, it's just it's such a tough business, and I didn't realize I was going to get such scrutiny for my writing. Hey, it is a business. So trust me, having written for a couple of publishers where you sign a contract that says the publisher owns the book, you know, you're writing for them. So now this whole, you know, the, the John Grisham got up at five o'clock in the morning and wrote on a legal pad stuff. That's that's a fairy tale. Um, <laughs> the reality is you're working for the man when you sign that contract. And in the same way, you know, I'm, I'm, I, this is what makes Crawford Broadcasting so wonderful is the fact that Don Crawford Sr. and his father, Percy Crawford, you know, starting this company. Um, I, I enjoy the interactions I have with them. Uh, this is a family owned company. It's a privately owned company. And yet there's a certain level of autonomy. We all understand where we're coming from. And they gave me a huge opportunity 11 years ago to come on here and start having conversation with you on a regular basis. And here we are 11 years later, and it's still going and growing strong. Uh, we have advertisers supporting us. There's no foundation behind us paying all the bills. And everybody gets what we're trying to do, which is to help to educate. Uh, there has to be a certain entertainment factor to it. But by and large, the analysis, balance, and then clarity is that's the goal. We do analysis. We get as much info as we can. We get balance. We get it from different points of view. And then we arrive at the clarity part, which is what exactly are we looking at here? And if you have the analysis, balance, and clarity function operating, then you get to the D part of the equation, which is discernment, where you can then discern between what is truth and what is error. And then once you get the discernment lined in, and you can only do that through the biblical worldview, by the way. I mean, as we'll see in this next story here, it's too easy to get in your own tribe and get in your own silo and hang out with your own people and you have the same conversations with the same types of folks who keep agreeing with you because you agree with them and you're not really any closer to the truth. You're not really closer to a biblical worldview, but you are closer to finding other people who are like-minded. And sometimes those like-minded people will leave out details of the truth and that's fine. One of the greatest compliments I get on this program and have been getting for 10 years is when I get an email from someone saying, you know, I can't believe you support so-and-so, and the very next email is, I can't believe you hate so-and-so. If, if, if people can't kind of pin me down on that, then I think, well, good. That means that they're not pay just, oh, Roger says this, so I have to do it. And that's good. That's good. Um, a, B, C, and D are in place. Then we get to E, which is edification. We know more, we're smarter, we're better informed. We can then be more compassionate. We can be kinder to people who either, and not just have differing points of view, but people who really don't know the truth. Because when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And the truth is you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We can't free ourselves. There's only one means of salvation from our sin and reconciliation to God, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Savior and your Lord, you will be saved. And we believe that that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving you the power of giving you the gift of faith to receive the gift of salvation that plunks you into the waters of baptism, that sends you to the uh, tables of the Eucharist and Holy Communion, and in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Full stop. So anyway, long way around the barn 
to say, let's do an analysis, balance, and clarity segment here on an issue that has become a hot button for a lot of people, and that is health and the environment and specifically the growing number of people who identify as vegan in our culture and why this next story is so crucial because it seems as though um, that the number of vegans in the U.S. has grown rather dramatically over the past decade. But you have to ask the question, well, why are they vegan? You may or may not have known this, but according to uh, the website trulyexperiences.com, approximately 6% of the U.S. population are what they consider to be plant-based. Right now, according to global market research company Ipsos, 9.7 million Americans, just under 10 million Americans, are vegan. Now, a vegan is somebody who does not eat meat. They don't eat any animal byproducts uh, that basically they're steering as far away from that as they possibly can. Now, there are some people who would say, I'm vegan, but I eat eggs. I'm vegan, but I'll have milk because that comes from the cow, but it doesn't wind up killing the cow. Now, you can make an argument either way as to why you should or should not have milk. I know a lot of people who are vegan like to drink almond milk or coconut milk. Quite frankly, as for me, um, when I did Laura uh, Laura Harris-Smith's uh, 30-Day Faith Detox six years ago, I gave up traditional whole milk or nonfat milk or whatever and switched to almond milk, and I've been drinking almond milk exclusively ever since then. Uh, to the point where real milk, as it is, does, doesn't taste good to me. <laughs> I like almond milk. But the number of vegans has grown, and there are people who do it for health reasons. There are people who do it for political reasons. Uh, son-in-law, Brian, who was an environmental studies major in college, while he was in college, he gave up eating meat and didn't want to eat any kind of dairy or anything of the sort because he believed that it was a better way to preserve the environment if we weren't slaughtering animals and raising animals and slaughtering animals. He has since kind of reverted over the past couple of years to uh, occasionally having some chicken or fish or something like that, but he did it for more of an environmental reason. I know a lot of people who are uh, you know, environmental vegans, as it were. But by and large, what happens in the culture and what typically happens is when we see somebody who's vegan or vegetarian, oftentimes, and and I say this with all love and respect to bottom line listeners who are vegan and vegetarian, if that is your choice, Romans 14, knock yourself out. I mean, just go go right ahead. Do what you think is right for your body. Um, I know what it's like to live a month or so trying to do raw vegan. It wasn't necessarily for me. Uh, Vegetarian, I do better when I'm not eating processed foods. I think most of us do. But by and large, every now and again, I just want a hamburger. I think my body needs the iron or something like that. The media, though, is very, very sympathetic to people who are vegetarian and vegan. As long as they're kind of normal members of society and they're not chaining themselves to trees and, you know, trying to smear fake blood everywhere, saying, you know, uh, your, your dinner is cruelty and this, that, and the other thing. You want to live and let live, that's fine. The analysis, balance, and clarity on this story coming up involves a Florida woman who was recently sentenced to life in prison, and her crime appears to be for trying to force her family to adhere to a strict vegan diet. Now, have we gotten to the point in American culture where being a vegan is grounds for incarceration? Well, the veganism, not necessarily, but what happened as a result of the veganism 
That's where she got into trouble with the law. We'll take a look at this case in greater detail coming up next as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. A Florida woman has been sentenced to life in prison for being a vegan. Well, that's how the, uh, the headline could have read. But that's not exactly what happened. Sheila O'Leary, uh, 38 years of age, uh, lived in Cape Coral, Florida. Sheila O'Leary is a vegan. And she had her family following what she described as a very strict vegan diet. She gave an interview to NBC News. Basically, her family adheres to a strict diet of raw fruits and raw vegetables. When their children, she and her husband, Ryan Patrick O'Leary, who's also facing charges, when their children were first born, uh, the the children were breastfed. And so even up until their second year of existence, mom would pump the breast milk. And so the kids were basically on a diet of raw fruits, raw vegetables, and breast milk. Sheila O'Leary and her husband Ryan O'Leary have two other children who are ages three and five or were when they were taken into custody. The state attorney general of uh, Florida, the office of the state attorney, Myra Fox, said the two children uh, had been suffering badly. Uh, They suffered extreme neglect and child abuse. So what was Sheila O'Leary convicted on? Well, she was convicted back in June on six different charges. First-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter, child abuse, and two counts of child neglect. She was hit with two 30-year sentences for aggravated child abuse and aggravated manslaughter of a child and an additional five-year prison sentence for child abuse and child neglect, and those will be served concurrently. Ryan O'Leary remains in jail and is awaiting trial on the same charges as his wife, and it's very likely that he will face a similar fate. But again, we have a, a, she's accused of murder and manslaughter and child abuse and neglect, and apparently her only crime that she committed was being a vegan. Well, let's take a look at exactly what happened in the O'Leary household. I mentioned that they had a strict vegan diet. Raw fruits, raw vegetables, breast milk for infants, that was it. I mentioned the three and five-year-old kids who were taken into uh, child protective custody because of the fact that uh, they were deemed to have been victims of child abuse and neglect. Again, the only crime is that mom served a vegan diet. So something really wrong had to be going on in this home. Well, here's where the case turned. 
Ezra O'Leary was the uh, Florida couple's 18-month-old son. When police did an autopsy on his body, he died on September the 27th, 2019. He weighed 17 pounds at the time of death. Now, I want to take a look here. Average weight of an 18-month-old baby. I don't know if you're still considered a baby at that. Okay. According to the World Health Organization, the average weight for an 18-month-old is 24.1 pounds for a boy and 23.4 pounds for a girl. Ezra O'Leary, on the day he was, uh, with the autopsy was conducted, weighed just 17 pounds. Now, that might not sound like a huge difference. I mean, in all honesty, it's only seven pounds. But when you consider how children grow and when you consider what baby weight does, the difference between 17 pounds and 24 pounds is not just seven pounds, but percentage-wise, it's massive. It's kind of like saying a child should be weighing 50, should weigh 100 pounds, and they only weigh 50. They're at half of their actual body weight. A couple more pounds less on the body of Ezra O'Leary, and that kid would have been half of the average body weight. 17 pounds at the time of death. Florida officials estimate that this 18-month-old boy was the size of a 7-month-old infant when he died. Prosecutors said that baby Ezra died, quote, from complications from severe malnutrition and dehydration. According to Francine Donnarumo, who's the Special Victims Unit Chief at Lee County State Attorney's Office, uh, she testified in the trial, this child did not eat. Mom can say all she wants, that he was a vegan and they're vegans and they gave him a very strict diet, but the reality is this child was starved to death for the entire 18 months he was alive. The uh, vegan mom and her husband are also accused of malnourishing their other two children. They've suffered from extreme neglect and child abuse. And so bad is the abuse that Sheila O'Leary has been ordered not to have any contact with them whatsoever. Sheila O'Leary also has a fourth child who had been ordered to return to his biological father because of malnutrition issues. Now, take this into consideration, brothers and sisters, and take it to heart. This is not a gang up on vegan families. I mean, I know a lot of vegan families. Heck, I just told you. My daughter Emily and son-in-law Brian uh, raised my, have raised my grandson Isaac to be a vegan up until just not too long ago. As a matter of fact, this past weekend, I had a chance to visit them in Texas, and we got hot dogs at the baseball game we went to. Angels were in town to play the Astros. Kind of weird saying we're going to go see the Angels and Astros and going to... Uh, Minute Maid Park in Houston, but that's closer to where Em and Brian live now. So, uh, you know, Isaac did not suffer whatsoever for the first four years he was alive because his parents fed him. It was a vegan diet, but they fed him. But please understand something. There's a huge issue that I think we in the body of Christ can be paying attention to if we will look closely at it. Here's a woman who honestly believed in her heart of hearts that the best thing for her and her family and her husband was for them to eat a vegan diet. And so they only had, I mean, the milk that they had, in the case of the kids, it was breast milk. It was the purest milk that they could find, nutritionally solid and plentiful if you're, uh, you know, manufacturing it the right way in your body. 
and then raw fruits and vegetables. Maybe they grew them in the backyard and they didn't grow that many of them. I, I, I don't know where they got their fruits and vegetables. But again, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, Daniel and his cohorts ate nothing but fruits and vegetables and drank water for two weeks, and they were in better shape than everybody in the king's army. The question isn't so much the foods themselves. It's what did mom and dad do with them? And on the other side of this break, I want to uh, see if we can learn a lesson from this tragic tale of a vegan family that has wound up malnourishing their children simply because they gave them the right foods, they just did not give them enough nutrition. We'll talk about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Right after you get into an accident, you need to call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to begin the process of healing. Too many people make the wrong choice and try to handle their case on their own. Don't be gullible. Your insurance company does not have your best interests in mind. Their job is to save money, not help you recover. Stephanie's priority is you. She will help you recover wholly, mind, body, and spirit, as well as get you the settlement you deserve. Begin your recovery by contacting Stephanie first and follow her instructions to streamline your healing process. Stephanie has over 25 years of experience and knows how to get you healed and restored. Although your friends and family may have good intentions, they are not personal injury attorneys, and therefore they do not know the best way to help you. Stephanie Cover does, and she will help you put the pieces back together financially, physically, and spiritually. You need to write down her number now, 877-214-4935, or go to kbrightradio.com slash Law. Your healing begins with Cover Law. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and so glad that you've tuned in for the program today. Uh, we're taking a look at doing an analysis, balance, and clarity segment on a mom in Florida by the name of Sheila O'Leary, who has now been sentenced to life in prison and has been forbidden to see her, her three other children after the starvation death of her 18-month-old son, Ezra, uh, Sheila O'Leary and her husband, Ryan, facing charges of uh, malnutrition. Oh, my gosh, the, the charges are just... They're horrifying. No parent wants to hear that. And, and for a woman who is a professed vegan who uh, uh, supposedly or allegedly uh, had her family on a very strict vegan diet, she was convicted on first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter, child abuse, and two counts of child neglect. Life in prison for the murder charge, two 30-year sentences for the aggravated child abuse and aggravated manslaughter charges, and an additional five-year prison sentence for child abuse and five years for child neglect. Those are all served, the 30- and uh, five-year terms are served concurrently, but then you've got those concurrent sentences along with the life sentence. And my cynical self said, well, I mean, this is really kind of an easy way to mete out justice, justice, if you will, uh, why not serve mom when she served her baby? Just give her fruits and vegetables in very small amounts. Um, but the food itself isn't the issue. Could a child, a newborn child, have survived on fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, and breast milk for 18 months? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. But something tells me he could have. But then there's the issue of the quality of the fruits and vegetables. Did he get enough of them? So the quantity becomes an issue. And then not only just how much did you get per serving, but how much did you get per day? Now ask yourself the question, do you hear in the body of Christ the number of young people who hold a biblical worldview in Generation Z, which is ages 12 to 25, is around 3%. 
The number of Christians who hold a biblical worldview in the culture is between 6 and 8%. The number of priests, pastors, messianic rabbis who hold to a biblical worldview in the double digits, low teens, low 20s. As a matter of fact, 37% of non-denominational pastors hold to a biblical worldview. So let me ask you the question. If you heard me share this story about Sheila O'Leary and said, well, wait a minute, she's a vegan mom and all she was giving her kids were fresh fruit and vegetables, kind of like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and breast milk and water, that doesn't sound like it's bad. But not enough per serving, not good enough quality per morsel you were eating, and not enough food to where this 18-month-old boy weighed 17 pounds at the time of his death. An 18-month-old who should have been thriving and active was the size of a 7-month-old. Which begs the question, how are what we doing, or how is what we are doing to our kids spiritually in the body of Christ any different? I mean, what are we providing for our children and for our grandchildren in terms of spiritual nourishment? Are we giving them the gospel? Are we giving them the truth of scripture? Are we living out the love of Christ? Me might very well be, but are we doing so in the right doses, in the right amounts? Are we, uh, are we, are we doing this in such a way that the kids are actually benefiting from what they're getting or are we doing it in such a way that it's not helping? Remember in the story of Daniel when he went to the king and said, "Look, don't give me fruits and don't give me don't give me don't give me wine and meat and stuff like that. Give me fruit and vegetables and water and you show me and I will show you that if you give me the right proportions of those in 2 weeks I'll be in better shape than your training guys are." If you're going to live this strict vegan diet, the kids should be healthier, not malnourished. If we're giving our kids good spiritual nutrition, they should be better served. And the fact that so many people in the younger generation are missing the mark is a wake-up call for us in the body of Christ that says, look, whatever you're doing, it's not working. Don't spend so much time trying to make youth group fun. Don't try to get people back in the pews after COVID. Preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the good news. Baptize those who respond to it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, praise God for the opportunity to win people to Christ, but let's not lose out on our own children. Let's not make them so spiritually malnourished that they wind up losing their lives and their souls to the enemy. Powerful article with a great spiritual parallel. We've got a link for that book, up, for that article up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, we are truly living in the end times. I believe that. Many other writers do. But how do we know what the end of the world, as it were, is going to look like. Uh, pastor and author Robert J. Morgan has written a great new book called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Robert joins me to talk about that coming up next as The Bottom Line continues. Newport Bay Mortgage will steer you in the right direction toward the truth about reverse mortgages. Owner Cliff enjoys educating every client and wants to debunk the misconceptions you may have heard. You'll see that an FHA-approved reverse mortgage gives you financial freedom. You can use it to pay bills, cover unexpected expenses, or watch your children and grandchildren enjoy themselves while you're still alive. Cliff informs you of the facts. Drawing from his 40 years of reverse mortgage experience, you must be 62 years or older for the FHA program 
and at least 55 for a conventional high-volume program. It doesn't affect any credit score points and can even be refinanced after one year. When considering ways to enjoy your liquidity in, before, or for retirement, you need Newport Bay Mortgage. Contact Cliff today. Visit kbrightradio.com slash reverse. That's kbrightradio.com slash reverse or 714-741-8080. NMLS 332959. Newport Bay Mortgage, an equal opportunity housing lender. Well, are we closer to the end times? Are we in the end times? And what does Bible have to say about it? We're going to answer all those questions for you in the next 20 minutes here on the Bottom Line Show. No, actually, we're not. But we're going to have a conversation about them with uh, Dr. Robert Morgan, who is, I think, someone who has the insight and has the knowledge and I think the discernment to be able to take a look at what's happening in world history right now and see, are we really close to the final days? Uh, earlier this spring, he published a book called The Final 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Pastor and author Robert Morgan, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Thank you, Roger. I'm so happy to be with you. Dr. Morgan is a writer and speaker who serves as teaching pastor at the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville. He's the author of The Red Sea Rules, Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation, Then Sings My Soul, and uh, many others, 4.5 million copies of his work in print. And this new book, I'm sure, has just gotten tongues wagging about these different events. First and foremost, Robert J. Morgan, are you predicting these 50 final events, or is this more biblical interpretation we're talking about? Well, the Bible predicts them. I think it's pretty clear when you read the book of Revelation. This is my study of the book of Revelation, which I've been studying for the last, uh, well, 45, 50 years. And, you know, we are afraid of the book of Revelation. Many Christians are intimidated by it. Many pastors don't preach from it. But really, my thesis is that God intended for us to understand this book. It is very understandable. It unfolds in a very logical, sequential way, and it tells us what's going to happen in the future. I mean, the very first verse says, this is the revelation that Jesus Christ gave his servants to show them what must soon take place. And so I love this book. It's full of hope, full of excitement, and full of heaven and full of Jesus. You know, it's interesting when you talk about that. I I wonder how many people just kind of ran for the aisle, you know, when you said, hey, this is actually a book filled, filled with hope, because I'll be honest with you, I mean, I'm, I'm just at 61 years of age, I grew up in the church, became a baptized believer in my early 20s, and I have never seen anyone in pastoral ministry embrace the revelation with the, dare I say, calm, or the assurance that you, Robert J. Morgan, do in this book, The 50 Final Events in World History. It seems like it, we get into all sorts of backpedaling and yeah, that, that, uh, you know, that type, uh, well, we'll let somebody else take a look at this one because we're going to stay with the Pauline epistles. You know, we're going to stay with the gospels. We're just going to preach the proper delineation between law and gospel. Uh, talk about, is there some kind of special way that we should be studying revelation that we in the body of Christ haven't done recently? Well, I, I think so. And that's why I wrote this book, the 50 final events. It's uh, that the key to understanding revelation in part is the phrase, after this, after this, after this, after this. It's all the way through the book of Revelation, letting us know that the events unfold sequentially. So I'll give you the whole book of Revelation in just, you know, 45 seconds here. Chapter one is introduction. Chapters two and three are the messages. 
think Jesus wanted the original seven churches to have in order for them to be as strong as possible to receive this information. Chapters 4 through 18 describe the seven years of tribulation and the events that will unfold one after the other. Chapter 19 is the return of Christ. Chapter 20 is his kingdom. And chapters 21 and 22 is the most vivid description we have in human literature of where we're going to be living forever if we know Christ as Savior. And that's the book of Revelation. Wow. And that was about 45 seconds on my clock. So thank you, Robert J. Morgan, for making it so simple. Uh, though it's not an easy book to understand, it is very simple in terms of the way it's laid out. Robert J. Morgan is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The book is called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Um, we're not going to have time in our 20 minutes to, you know, I don't want you to jet tour through all the seven seals and, you know, that, that type of thing. But there are certain hot button issues in Revelation that the church can sometimes really get stuck on. Um, is there anything that, it, take a look at the, uh, the, the segment of the book you call the first half of the tribulation. Is there any one part of that that we might be missing that's kind of hiding in plain sight that the, the modern church would be wise to spend more time contemplating, praying over, and anticipating? Well, we need to be watching out for the developing of some crisis that will lead to uh, a drive towards a globalized government. Mm -hmm. And this is the first of the seven seals. It is this warrior that comes out with his sword on a white horse to take charge of things. So I don't think we can tell from the Bible when Christ is going to come again, but I do think we can get an indication from world events. If there is a catastrophic world event, whether it's the rapture of the church, whether it's uh, the breakdown of the electrical grid or a worldwide financial collapse, um, whether it's a nuclear war or uh, uh, some kind of war that completely engulfs the entire world, whether it's another pandemic, something will happen that will drive us towards a unified government response to it that is globalized in nature. And, um, you know, it, we came a little bit, we got a glimpse of this during coronavirus. Mm -hmm, right. There were people, people who were arguing that we needed a globalized authority to take charge of this. Tony Blair was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the elitists, the globalists, they're looking for something like this, and the philosophical and political foundations are being laid. So I just think we need to watch for those catastrophic potential events that could be so uh, so jolting to this planet that everyone begins saying we need a globalized response to it that will bring the world under the authority of one central unifying power. And, uh, and we can see the signs of that beginning to come together in our own day and age. Yeah, the, the birth pangs, the, uh, if you will, I don't want to colloquialize it yeah. too much, but the, the Braxton Hicks, you know, part of the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, that, that part of the equation that feel very real, but they aren't. And yet at the same time, uh, we need to be mindful of the fact that those happen when you're getting closer to labor and delivery. Um, you mentioned in, there's one chapter in the book, the 50 final events in world history that I'm sure got tongues wagging too, where you talk about the potential rapture of the church. What specifically do you mean by that? Well, the church is going to be raptured. I don't have any question about that. Mm -hmm. The question that we have is the timing of it, mm -hmm. because the rapture and resurrection is described by the Apostle Paul 
very vividly in First Thessalonians chapter four, mm-hmm. and also in First Corinthians fifteen, but especially First Thessalonians four, when John is explaining the events of the end times, he does not use Pauline language. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use the same kind of language that Paul does. So we have to say, where in the book of Revelation does the rapture of the church take place? And I believe it takes place at the beginning of the tribulation period in chapter four of Revelation, but I'm not real dogmatic about that. And just today, I had a friend who argued that it would be in the middle of the tribulation, which would be in chapters 12 and 13. And then other people, including my son-in-law, who's a very good theologian, believes it is one and the same with the second coming in chapter 19. So when I say the potential rapture, I'm not talking about the rapture being a potential. I'm saying that potentially it could occur at the very beginning of the tribulation. Yeah, it's a timing issue. And I think as you're describing it, Dr. Robert J. Morgan, that that event as one of the 50 final events in world history uh, is one that I th- we could really chase our tail over if we get hung up on the semantics and pre-trib, post-trib, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But as opposed to what I'm hearing you saying and from different perspectives with your son-in-law and other you know leaders that you're talking with is something tells me that the church has drifted, at least the Western church has drifted into more of a comfort mode and those who are saying, well, we want this to happen before any of the bad stuff happens because I can't bear living in that kind of pain. Your message to the church is there's going to be a rapture. Just be ready for it whenever it happens. Yes. I mean, I, I don't think that we can be as dogmatic on the timing of the rapture as we can on the essential fundamental doctrines of the faith. You know, I will die for the proposition that Christ rose from the dead. Amen. Uh, that the blood of Christ cleanses us, that we have eternal life because Christ provided it. But I'm not going to die over the timing of the rapture. Right. You know, I have my preferred view. But that is a not what we would typically call back in Bible college a non-essential doctrine. Right. You don't have to believe it in order to be saved, or at least you don't have to believe my particular version of it. So uh, it for much of the world right now, um the church is going through incredible tribulation i've been reading just this week about what's happening in china with the oppressive surveillance mm-hmm. uh it's unbelievable uh the the uh the prohibitions against sharing anything with your children about the bible and they're listening on the cell phones and they're questioning your children at school and entire churches are voting on whether or not they can remain in China or should they try to emigrate hmm. to you know to Taiwan or or to Indonesia or somewhere else. Um, and and so Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation. Now uh, whether we will go through the great tribulation, you know, my pre- my my belief is no, but but that's not really an essential germane view when you come to understanding the book of Revelation. Um, John just doesn't deal with it in the same kind of linguistic way that Paul does in the epistles. Robert J. Morgan, with much for us to consider today here on The Bottom Line, he's outlined that in his brand new book called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on 
what Earth's final days. And we have a link for this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I can't recommend it to you enough, especially in the times that we're living in right now. We'll take a quick break and come back with more in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. Dr. Robert J. Morgan is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. He's been a recurring guest here for the past couple of years on this program. And I really appreciate his insights, his heart. Uh, the brand new book is called The Final, 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth, Earth's Final Days. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And Dr. Morgan, I appreciate the way you outline the kind of uh, pre, mid, and post-trib world you know, that we're going to inhabit. And there are so many different uh, uh, things that you outline here that we can see in the book of Revelation that you, uh, you mentioned in our earlier segment. This is a book of the Bible that you approach with wonder. Uh, with awe, you know, uh, with even with anticipation, whereas many in the pastoral world look at this as, wow, they didn't teach me this in seminary. This is above my pay grade. I don't want to say the wrong thing, you know, that type of thing. And so I think your your book is quite a primer. Um, we were talking during the break about people who have been part of our world who are now with the Lord. And um, I know that you've shared with us here on this program before about your wife's passing and um, being, you know, experience her full and complete healing. And as we're having this conversation today, a woman who served our ministry here at uh, Crawford Broadcasting, Teresa Rogers, uh, received her ultimate healing from breast cancer just this past weekend. And um, I find for me personally, being 61 years of age, the more I hear those announcements or walk that road in pastoral ministry with some people who've uh, helped someone across the finish line, as we like to say, that that gets tougher and tougher to say goodbye and yet, as I'm wiping away a tear for our myhopenow.com people who are watching us online, um, there's a part of the book of Revelation that tells us where we're going, you know, and what this whole process is leading to. Can you take a couple of moments, uh, Dr. Morgan, and help us understand what those last two chapters in Revelation are really about, rather than just saying, Phew, we survived the tribulation and now we get to go to heaven? Help us dig into that. Sir, a bit. Yes, certainly. Uh, I like to say that all of the 65 books of the Bible lead to Revelation, and all of the 22 chapters of Revelation lead to heaven. And my approach to Revelation is, it is more literal than people think. Now, there is symbolism there. It is, you know, some of the literalness is overlaid with symbolism, but that you can take a great deal of, of what Revelation says uh, literally. And when you when we come to those last two chapters, uh, I don't see any reason not to take them quite literally. Uh, it describes uh, a real world. Uh, it begins by saying in chapter 21, John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Well, Peter has already told us in 2 Peter chapter 3, just a few pages before, that the old heavens and old earth that we are living in now will be burned with fire and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Well, John says, don't worry, God is going to recreate everything. He is going to make a new universe, a new planet Earth, and then out of heaven, the heaven, the cosmic geography that exists now, this new city of Jerusalem will come down. It's where my wife is now, Katrina, where, uh, where our loved ones are in Christ. It will come down as the capital city to this new Earth and the spiritual and the physical dimensions or realms will be merged together. And so this is, we, John uh, is standing on a mountain 
He says, the angel took me to a mountain on the new earth and I watched the city of New Jerusalem come down. And then I got closer to it and I saw the foundations. I saw the gates. I saw the inscriptions. I saw the building materials. And then he says, I went through the gates and I saw the, the buildings there, the translucent gold. I saw the streets. And he comes to the very middle of the city. He sees the throne of God and the crystal river flowing from beneath the throne and the tree of life park. And he describes it all there. And all of this is literal. The reason we know it's literal is because Jesus rose literally physically from the grave. And we're going to rise physically and literally. And so we have to live in a physical and a literal place. And when my wife was just on the verge of passing away, I made a date with her to walk along the Crystal River, along the golden pathway by the Crystal River. And I intend to keep that Mm. date. And every time I read Revelation 22, I think of that. And it gives me a tremendous amount of hope. Uh, That's the way that God wanted to end his Bible, with a travel log of our eternal home. Uh, Such a beautiful word picture. Uh, Robert J. Morgan, and I, I, I look forward to the fact that you and Katrina can wa- have that walk together. The fact that we in the body of Christ who are called and redeemed will have that moment. And it, it is so daunting to think that we will live through potentially the tribulations that are outlined in, in the book of Revelation and the breaking of the seals and you know the, the Antichrist and everything that is, is, we're told is going to happen. But at the same time, I, I can't help but think of what a loving God we serve, who would not only reveal all of this to us, so we, we, we shouldn't be taken by surprise, but then let us know how it ends, and the story ends so much better than we win, you know, I mean, which I think well, that's yes, kind of, it does. That's where a lot of Christians are, though, isn't it? How do we move from we win to we will celebrate, we will be glorified along with Christ, we will experience this new heaven and earth, but the road to getting there is going to be a difficult one to walk. Well, every day has its own challenges and difficulties. We just have to take things one day at a time, one step at a time now. We need to pray for the persecuted church. I pray for them every morning. I've got a burden for the persecuted church because they're going through uh, tribulation right now in their respective nations. Uh, What's happening in communist China is unequaled uh, in, in the nature of their surveillance and oppression of the church. Um, So all of this is going to happen on this planet, but we look to Jesus. He has overcome. He's with us. He lives within us by the Holy Spirit. He himself endured a great deal. He's going to bear us through. He tells us to be of good courage, not to be afraid. We're to be optimistic. We're to be cheerful. And the tribulation itself, these catastrophic things are targeted at evil. It is to judge evil. That is why these seals and these trumpets and these bowls of wrath are poured out. It is the judging of evil on this earth. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And then it ends with the description of our eternal home. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of Bible study groups using this book uh, because they have never really understood the book of Revelation before. And if there was ever a generation, Roger, that needed to understand this book, it is ours. So, uh, so I love talking about it, and, and I love the way that the story ends in chapters 21 and 22. 
Yeah, a beautiful ending, and I highly recommend, I commend to you Robert J. Morgan's book, The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth, Earth's Final Days. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. If your church has not studied this yet, if your Bible study group has not gone through it yet, if you're not paying attention to what's happening internationally, and Dr. Morgan has a heart for China, mine heart is for Afghanistan, people are looking at Russia and Ukraine and seeing the way the world actors are starting to line up and uh, and prepare for these events that are happening and heck brothers and sisters if, even if you're not theatrical we just had a dress rehearsal with the global pandemic i think that that's a, is that a fair way to describe what we lived through Dr. absolutely Morgan? yes yeah. I, I hadn't heard it put that way before but you're exactly right yeah that's a, this is this book the 50 final events in world history will help you not that we're trying to play guess what's behind door number one we know God was very clear in telling us, but we need to know so that we can help others to navigate these waters and to win others into the kingdom uh, before the Lord's return. Robert J. Morgan, the book is called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days, a very encouraging book that's up at thebottomlineshow.com. Dr. Morgan, thank you again for your time and for your passion and for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you, Roger, and the Lord bless you richly. Well, that was an insightful, eye-opening, powerful, possibly even poignant conversation with pastor and author Dr. Robert J. Morgan today here on The Bottom Line. Again, that book is called The Final, The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com, and we have a copy of the book to give away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to The Bottom Line Show, and we look forward to hearing from you. Of course, it's not an everybody wins Monday, so I mean, everyone wins Wednesdays coming up for when everybody has a chance to win something. But I encourage you to give us a call and get a hold of a copy of this book. Um, this is a book that's a game changer for people who are wondering about the end of the world and also uh, something that we in the pastoral world have known for quite some time, and that is that uh, Revelation is a book that scares a lot of people, especially people in the pulpit. But when you see the way Robert J. Morgan outlines these 50 final events in world history that shows us what the Bible tells us is going to happen, I think it'll give you hope. It'll give you confidence. We're giving away a copy of the brand new book by Robert J. Morgan. It's called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. My thanks again to Dr. Robert J. Morgan, pastor and author of the book called The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. The link is up for the book at thebottomlineshow.com, and we are, have a copy that we're giving away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, that's the number to get you through to the bottom line. That copy, by the way, is hardcover. The paperback isn't coming out till uh, early next year. You know, it's interesting uh, to, to look at the journey of the end times, and I wonder how many people have never really studied Revelation. I, I remember I spent some time with Jerry B. Jenkins uh, not long ago and then got to hang out with his son Dallas on the set of The Chosen about a month ago. And I was remembering the Left Behind series and how so many people would look at the books and go, wow, this is really great. And other people go, oh, I can't believe you're doing this. And you know, why are you speculating? You made up a story about Revelation. But I remember having the opportunity to talk with Jerry Jenkins about that very issue. I said, you know, I, whether we're going to sit here and argue eschatology or, or debate 
theology here. I'm just glad that nothing more that the Left Behind series got people opening the book of Revelation and actually reading it. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that we talked about at, toward the end of our conversation is I mentioned that it seemed like Dr. Morgan mentioned that a you know, worldwide pandemic would be one of the signs of birth pains. And I said, yeah, it's almost like what we went through with COVID over the past couple of years was a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen in world events. So there's good news and bad news. The good news is we're getting closer to the Lord's return, and that's good. The bad news is we're getting closer to the Lord's return. <laughs> you get the idea. Um, it's kind of scary. What about you know Russian threats? What about uh, Asian extremism, Turkey, Middle East, China? I mean, the, the list goes on. Here's a resource that gives you a comprehensive yet easy to understand overview of the book of Revelation. And how many of us have been walking with the Lord since, really since I was 19? I grew up in church, but committed my life to Christ just before my 19th birthday. And I realized that in the 40 plus years that I've been walking with the Lord, Revelation had been some of the cleaner pages of my New Testament. But I want to encourage you, as a Christ follower, there are so many things going on in the world right now where you could just kind of lose your mind on TikTok or in sporting events or hobbies or crafts or this, that, and the other thing. Take some time to look at this part of scripture, challenge yourself to look at the parts of scripture that you haven't spent a lot of time studying. And if Revelation is one of those books, you know, here's the beautiful thing about how God loved us. God loves the world so much that he sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty for our sin. Anyone who places their faith in him, knowing that we've been given the gift of faith by God himself, we place our faith and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection to pay the penalty for our sin. We will not perish, but we'll have everlasting life. But God also loves us enough and loved us enough to give a revelation of what the final days would be like to the Apostle John. And John faithfully wrote that down for us, and we have it contained in the pages of the book of Revelation. So we know. It's more than just saying, I know who wins. It's us. But this is how it's going to unfold. What a great and loving God to tell us that even though things are going to get tough and thorny in the final days, Jesus has overcome the world and we will rule and reign with him. And that's the bottom line. Well, welcome back to this edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marshall. Welcome, uh, depending on where you're catching us. I realize this in the new era, people consume media however they do. And basically what we're looking at now is the fact that people can listen to the Bottom Line Show on our flagship affiliate, KBRT, in Southern California that covers L.A., Orange, San Bernardino, Riverside, San Diego, and parts of Ventura County. It actually goes to the Ventura County line. And then we have FM 100.7 in Corona, which is a city of 150,000. Uh, my wife's been here for life in Corona. It's a great town. We really love it. If you've never, if you want to hear the bottom line or any of our K-Bright programming on FM, uh, check us out at 100.7 FM. Our San Diego listeners know that we have a signal at AM 1240. Uh, that's K-Bright, official call letters KNSN. And then we also have one in National City, an FM translator at 103.3. Now, that's where you can listen to the Bottom Line Show in Southern California. Uh, as you head up to Northern California, it's KCBC, AM 770 out of Central Valley that goes all the way up to Sacramento. We're also heard at 94.7, I believe, on the FM dial uh, as well throughout Central Valley. And then when you get into Colorado, we've got two options for you. Uh, KLDC, which carries the full 90 minutes of the program, AM 1220 in Denver. And then a KLTT, AM 670, uh, where we have um, uh, the Bottom Line Show airing in a half-hour format uh, from 2.30 to 3 Mountain Time. And that's just a ton of fun. 
Um, by the way, if you're a KCBC listener and you're listening right now, that means you're listening online. Um, but you can hear the Bottom Line Show Extra. Bottom Line Show is 3.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. Bottom Line Extra, 7 to 7.30. And then Bottom Line Rewind the following day from 10.30 to 11 on KCBC. So that's where you catch us wherever you do. Now, I haven't even talked about My Hope Now, and that's the opportunity you have to, as a matter of fact, my interview with uh, Dr. Robert J. Morgan um, that we just heard on the uh, radio network uh, should be up any moment at myhopenow.com. We actually did a Zoom recording, so you could see both myself and Dr. Morgan having a conversation about the, uh, uh, the 50 signs of the end of the world according to the Bible and the brand new book of his. And uh, there's, when you go through, click through, uh, scroll on through, if you will, and you'll see all sorts of different things. You see interviews of me, uh, interviewing different people. Uh, sometimes it's me doing a call-in thing with y'all. Uh, sometimes just kind of me ranting a little bit. You get a little bit of the National Crawford Roundtable on there. By the way, National Crawford Roundtable is at myhopenow.com, and that's the full one-hour edition that we do on camera. So that's a that's a ton of fun. You hear a half hour every Thursday on our bottom line show network and i know they also run it on kltt a couple times and our sister station klz in denver carries it uh, from six to seven every thursday but there's just a lot going on as far as how to consume the media that we produce here at the bottom line show and crawford broadcasting and i really hope that you'll uh, interact with us that you'll reach out to us uh, at some point let us know how you are listening um, of course, the you know traditional way is just turn on the radio every day. <laughs> That's fine. But if you go to thebottomlineshow.com, for whatever reason you wind up missing a day's uh, program, or maybe you only catch a little bit, but you want to go back and hear it again, all of that info is up at thebottomlineshow.com as well. Um, we're going to do, uh, this is our second analysis, balancing clarity uh, conversation here, but this is kind of a walk the talk in reverse, uh, this next segment. And it's, it, it's it's something that has been kind of a pet peeve of mine for a while, and I think it's only getting worse. As a matter of fact, last week we did a uh, a call in segment on the power company in uh, was it Excel Power in the Denver area that shut down the uh, uh, the power use or the power grid ability for people in uh, one consumption area to actually control their own thermostat. They locked up the thermostats for couple hours there were about 22,000 customers that were impacted and and I realized we had some callers call and say yeah you know at least it wasn't a rolling blackout at least it wasn't they didn't shut down the power they just controlled the regulation of uh, the the thermostats my concern was have we gotten to the point where the media are telling us what we can and can't do based on what the government is telling them we can and can't do and I know it seems like a very small point I mean, it really honestly does. It, it, it seems like such a, a minor point. I mean, if you were given the option on a 90-degree day, on a 100-degree day, given the option of running your air conditioning at 80 degrees to cool off a little bit or not having any power in the entire home, which would you choose? Well, obviously, you'd choose, you know, having some power over having no power whatsoever. But take that a little step further, if you will. And ask yourself the question, this is something that, that bothered me about this. I, I talked a little bit about the smart home technology and how many, so many of us have, uh, whether it's a ring camera on the front doorstep or, uh, or sometimes ring cameras inside your home. Uh, maybe you put them there, maybe you didn't. If you've got Alexa uh, as part of your quote-unquote smart home, then that has a two-way camera on it to where uh, you watch them, but they can watch you too. 
um, and they can pick up your buying habits and your media consumption habits. And it may not seem that like that big a deal to some people, but if it's used improperly, then the government can really, you know, pay closer attention to who you are and what you do. And then there are the smart TVs, which are interactive, because the nice thing about a smart TV is not only can you watch a broadcast company, but you can also interact with people. A lot of people have, I mean, I have a smart television in my office. I hardly ever turn it on, my office at home. But I could conceivably do uh, Zoom connections or uh, Skype or whatever back and forth where there's a two-way exchange where I can see you in your office and you can see me in my office and we have that two-way communication. Well, that smart TV does also give potentially the operators of said site you know, they're in a big hurry to give you free access to Zoom or Skype or whatever it is, but that's because they're picking up your data too. And I don't say that to, to try to, to scare, you know, or whatever. That's just a reality. That's the, the, it's the, uh, the trade-off and the payoff uh, that we have for using the technology that makes our life so much better and so much easier. But one part of that story with the Excel uh, uh, Energy Company out of Denver that really bothered me was not so much the fact that they locked up the... Uh, the thermostats. I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, everybody who signed up for that AC surge uh, program got a $100 credit when they signed up off of their energy usage. They got a $25 annual uh, credit for being part of the, sur the, 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 the program. And basically what the program was telling them was we agree on warm weather days to not cool our place of residence to the point where it's going to be putting a taxing uh, problem uh, for the energy grid or same thing with cold weather if it gets to be so cold you know people want to uh, heat their places up really really high and it might be 10 below outside well you're cold but do you need it to be 78 inside your home I mean could you do 58 or 68 and just wear warm clothing if it comes down to shutting down the power and not having any or having some it's just not the temperature you want we would all take door number two but what concerned me about that was whether or not this actually was an energy emergency. The spokesperson for Excel Energy said there was an outage in the community and we had to do what we could to restore power there. So we started limiting other people's power to restore the power in the community. And that's what bothered me, to be honest with you, because he did not specifically say which town or which city had the problem, how many customers were knocked out, how long this would happen. They just randomly said, we're going to take your power and we're going to lock your thermostat. Now, you may complain about this, Mr. and Mrs. Customer, but you signed the deal and you got the $100 credit, so you're going to have to go with this. It, it reminded me yet again of how the power of persuasion is so powerful, so influential. When it comes to that, how many people bothered to ask the question, are we really having a power crisis to the point where they need to shut this down or did they just shut it down? We had a caller uh, who called in and asked about rolling blackouts and said, well, those are kind of an inconvenience. And I asked the question, well, how do you know that that's actually necessary? From what I've studied with regards to uh, energy conservation, water conservation especially, they'll badger us as individual citizens till they're blue in the face Got to save water, can't water your lawn, blah, blah, blah. California consumers use 10% of the water supply. If you want to conserve water, go after businesses and not farms for crying out loud. 
We don't have that many farms left. And when Governor Brown was governor, he and President Obama would walk the Central Valley. Well, you know, look at all the dust here. We better stop growing almonds because no, don't dust. Just do a better job of managing your water. It's a commodity. But it's amazing how all the media goes out there and says, you know, we're going to have rolling blackouts this weekend. And everybody goes, oh, God, rolling blackouts. If you read the headlines carefully over Labor Day weekend, what you saw was not that there would be rolling blackouts in California, but there might be rolling blackouts in California. The assumption was it's going to be very hot and people are going to want to use air conditioning a lot. So therefore, it's the same thing that happened during COVID. In 2020, we were told from Labor Day on, we would be in a COVID crisis because there would be a huge surge in the number of cases reported. And guess what happened? There was no surge. You know why? Because there was no medical data. There was no scientific evidence that there was any kind of surge getting ready to surge. What there was was hyperbole from the media. Well, people are going back to school and they're going to to be at the beach and they're going to have these family gatherings. And so obviously... They're going to be super spreader events and we're going to have this problem. Well, that's not true. That's not true. It didn't happen. We didn't have the rolling blackouts and brownouts the way the quote-unquote experts told us we would because even though there was extreme heat in the Southland, the demand stayed fairly normal. Colorado still can't tell us why 22,000 people had to suffer in a town of 3 million because of an outage, quote-unquote, that no one knows where it happened. You get the idea now, if you do analysis, balance, and clarity, then you can take a look and say, well, what's really going on versus really what's not going on? Toward that end, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a Southern California Assemblywoman from the California State Assembly jumped on the dog pile of abortion rights supporters on June 24th, 2022. That's the day that Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey were overturned. That's when California said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? They overturned Roe versus Wade. What will we do in California, the most pro-abortion state in, in the country? We have, to, we have to make sure that abortions happen and, 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 and there's going to be this mad rush of people who are desperately needing abortions. And so... How many people are going to come from states where abortion is no longer legal to California? She'll say she's doing it for women's reproductive rights and reproductive justices. But is she? Was this the reason why California Assembly Bill 1918 was passed and why it's waiting for Governor, I want to say Governor Brown, why it's waiting for Governor Newsom's signature? Let's take a look at what the bill does and the need that it allegedly meets. And then we'll also look at the realities of abortion and the pro-life movement. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. Let Wilson Financial Services help you identify proprietary financial strategies for your wealth that work for your life. Let's revisit our one-year CD. Had a client who had $500,000 of retained earnings in his corporation for the last three years. I said, if you'd have put that into this account three years ago, you'd have seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of interest versus what you have now, which is a nice round number. Had a client sell his house, had 450000 in the bank. I told him, is he really not likely to buy a house in the next 12 months? You want to leave this in the bank earning nothing? Or would you like to earn some interest on it over the next 12 months? So he said, how much? I said, well, how about between twenty and 30000 He says, zero versus twenty or 30000 Yeah, he says, 
I like the twenty or thirty thousand. Sounds better. Aren't you tired of earning nothing with all the money you have in the bank? Call eight hundred six nine six ninety nine seventy. Eight hundred six nine six ninety nine seventy. Or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. This is kind of a walk the talk in reverse for the abortion industry of all places. A California assemblywoman by the name of Cotty Petrie Norris, who's an assemblywoman from Irvine, drafted a law that was has been passed by the California State Assembly. Uh, Assembly Bill 1918 is actually part of a package of 13 bills that were authored by the California Legislative Women's Caucus. They were addressing the nationwide threat, I'm reading from a press release here, the nationwide threat to women's reproductive rights in accordance with recommendations from the Future of Abortion Council. In August, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris met with Vice President Kamala Harris to discuss work with the Biden-Harris administration and California and what they're doing. And I love this term. I mean, it just cracks me up. It's good marketing. To safeguard reproductive rights. Safeguard abortion care. Gang, you and I both know what abortion is. Abortion is the taking of an innocent life. It's the killing of a child in the womb. Full stop. And California leads the league. Not only in abortions, but also in laws that protect abortions. California is the most pro-abortion state in the history of the world. And they see an opportunity here. AB 1918 supports and expands the reproductive health care workforce. Did you catch that? This is the terminology. The bill creates something called the California Reproductive Health Care Service Corps, which will be responsible for, get this, recruiting, training, and retaining a culturally and linguistically diverse workforce of healthcare professionals who will be part of reproductive health care teams assigned to work in underserved areas across our state. Now, before we go any further with this nonsense, please understand that Planned Parenthood handles about 40% of the abortions in the United States. They don't represent all of the abortion clinics, but there are about 650 Planned Parenthood clinics available in the U.S. Let's assume that if they're handling 40%, you could do the math, there might be as many as 1,300 abortion clinics in the country. I think it's actually closer to 900, but nonetheless. There are 900 abortion clinics in the U.S. right now, and there were that was that way when Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade were the law of the federal land. And no one was complaining about underserved areas across the state. By definition, legally, there is no such thing as an underserved underserved area in the state of California. Because if there were, legally, anybody who wants to start an abortion clinic could start one. But nonetheless, Assemblywoman Petrie Norris secured $20 million in the new California state budget to fund targeted recruitment and retention resources and training programs for health care providers that serve patients at reproductive health care provider locations to complement this legislation. Did you catch that? In essence, what they're saying is we're starting a task force, which means lots of layers of government bureaucracy. We got $20 million. Remember how proud Governor Newsom was of the big surplus we had in the state of California? 
And what are we going to do with that big surplus? Well, $20 million is going to something now called the California Reproductive Health Services Corps. Recruiting, training, and retaining a culturally and linguistically diverse workforce of healthcare professionals who will be part of reproductive healthcare teams to work in under... Basically what they want is abortion clinics in as many communities as they can get. And they want to make sure they speak as many different languages as they possibly can because the quote-unquote underserved part might mean Hispanic women who only speak Spanish or only really speak Mexican as opposed to textbook Spanish. And they want to make sure that they understand what their rights are. You have the right to kill your preborn child. That's the counsel that they'll get. Remember Elizabeth Warren making a big sting? Oh, these pregnancy resource centers, well, they're not licensed. And so therefore they're spreading lies and hate and misinformation. What she misspelled was, you want to talk about lies? Go to an abortion clinic and ask them, well, you got a couple options. First, ask them what three options a pregnant woman has. They'll give you one answer. Well, they might give you two. The one answer is you have to have an abortion because you can't afford to be a mom. The second answer is, well, I guess you could try to be a parent if you could find a way to pay for it. Nowhere in their literature, nowhere in their conversation will they ever mention that you could place the child for adoption once the baby is born. If you find the right adoption agency, they'll help you get all the medical care that you need. They'll get you a stipend. They'll find you a place to live if you need it. They'll help you with educational access. I mean, work studies the whole shot. It's amazing to watch the eyes of a young woman light up when she finds out, hey, wait a minute, just because I'm pregnant, I, if I want what's best for my baby, maybe what's best for my baby is to adopt that child into a family who loves him or her. And I'll get all my medical stuff covered during my pregnancy. I'll get a stipend. That means money <laughs> for being the birth mother. This is a great deal. And the state's not paying for that. The pregnancy resource centers are making that happen. But check this out. California, the most pro-abortion state in the, in, the, uh, in the nation. This is why we are seeing this bill. The author of Assembly Bill 1918 said, California is a beacon for women across the country. We must increase access for reproductive... Why don't they just say, we want to be the place where you can kill your kid legally. We want to make sure we have abortion clinics in all of California's counties. Did you know that in spite of the fact that California does a huge abortion business every year, evidently 40% of California counties do not have an abortion provider? Let that one sink in. This is courtesy of Shannon Hovis from the NARAL Pro-Choice uh, Organization. She's the director of uh, operations in California. Let me pull up my handy-dandy calculator here. This shouldn't be too tough to figure out, but I don't want to mess the number up. There are 58 counties in California. 40% of the counties would be 23. So basically, 35 counties in California have abortion clinics. 23 counties do not. And that's not sitting right with the National Abortion Rights Action League pro-choice organization that has 300,000 members. They want to make sure that the state gives them $20 million so they can start building more abortion clinics in the counties that do not have abortionists. Now, here's a bigger problem, and they tie these two together like we're not going to notice. In nine California counties, there is not one single OBGYN practicing medicine. 
Now, is it possible that part of the reason why there is no OBGYN in like Placer County is because there is not a heavy demand for an OBGYN? Possibly. But basically, expanding access, expanding the medical workforce, basically, here's what they want to do. They're taking $20 million out of the, fed, of the state budget. They're hitting up President, Vice President Harris in an election year to ask for more money from the federal government. California currently, this is the first time, actually, this is wild. Um, the press release regarding AB 1918 in California says this. Recent actions surrounding Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court have put more than 36 million Americans at risk of losing access to abortion care. In addition to the larger trend towards states removing abortion protections. No, they're not removing abortion protections. They're shifting the protections, if you will, from the abortionist to the child. But California is notorious for not providing accurate numbers with regard to how many abortions are performed, how many abortionists are here. And this report actually has a silver lining for us. It's the first time I've seen anything that looks like a tangible number as to how many abortions are performed in California on a regular basis. We'll take a look at that actual number coming up next as the bottom line continues. Welcome back to this Walk the Talk segment of the bottom line. I'm Roger Marsh. The Walk the Talk part here is uh, unfortunately because of a group of abortionists that have been shaking down the state of California for an extra 20 million bucks to build more abortion clinics. But here's where we in the pro-life community can walk the talk. I have a statistic for you that will, I think, help frame the argument. Here's the, st- the statistic. If California gets AB 1918 signed into law, Governor Newsom has yet to sign it yet, um, the number of patients who travel into California from out of state for an abortion would move from 46,000 annually to potentially 1.4 million. This is from last December's report from a group called the Future of Abortion Council. Now, isn't it interesting? Last December, they were anticipating that Roe versus Wade would be overturned. They'd heard the oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court, and they knew it was only a matter of time. We've heard tell from places like the Guttmacher Institute and others that the number of abortions that happen nationwide is around a million. And then, of course, that's the surgical abortions. Don't forget the abortion pill, et cetera, et cetera. California right now does a brisk business. 46,000 women every year come to California from outside the state of California to have abortions here. With more and more companies, including abortive, quote-unquote, care as part of their insurance plans and giving people the opportunity, saying, well, you're in Texas and abortion's illegal in Texas, but if you need an abortion, you can access the travel to a different state part of your health insurance because, well, that health insurance plan is that, that... if someone needs a heart transplant, that's what that transportation money's for. But now these insurance companies say, well, if you need an abortion, that's the same thing. But the Future of Abortion Council is finally acknowledging that at least 46,000 women come to California every year from out of state to have an abortion. But notice the number they say. We could see this number increase to 1.4 million. California would have a new tourist industry, and that is abortion tourism. 
We pray that Assembly Bill 1918 does not pass. There's a reason why it uh, be to pass the Assembly, but why it hasn't been signed into law yet. We'll see what happens before the end of the month, because that's when the governor has the opportunity to sign it. By the way, if you've not registered to vote yet, please do so. We've got that link for registration up at thebottomlineshow.com. Let your voice be heard. And may you and I continue to walk the talk in our faith, not just to talk about what's going on here, but to stand up, in this case, to stand up against a bill like AB 1918 and fight for the sanctity of human life, not only for the mother, but also for the child. That's the bottom line.